Hello, I'm John Kelly, host of the Imprint Weekly Podcast, and this is a special bonus series we call Big Questions for Child Welfare. Molly Tierney and Daniel Heifel have known each other for years. Tierney is the child welfare lead for Accenture, who led Baltimore's child welfare agency for 10 years. Heimpel is the founder of Fostering Media Connections. In this series of podcast conversations, the two friends discuss several of the weighty issues facing child welfare today, including questions about its very existence as we know it. On today's episode, Tierney and Heimpel look back at Molly's 2014 TED Talk on child welfare reform entitled Rethinking Foster Care. That day, she received a standing ovation for a speech that questioned the underpinnings of what she described as the child welfare industrial complex. To date, the talk has been viewed on YouTube by more than 100,000 people. Heimpel and Tierney reflect on that speech, discuss what has changed about child welfare since then, and what they see for the field on the near horizon. Enjoy the conversation. Hi, everybody. It's uh, Daniel Heimpel, now board chair of Fostering Media Connections. And I'm here with Molly McGrath-Tierney, who was, of course, at some point in her career, the head of Baltimore's Child Protection System. And we're going to be talking about this TED Talk she gave back in 2014, essentially tying the child welfare system's reverence of the concept of foster care to Einstein's definition of insanity. And I'm looking forward to getting an update from her as to where we are almost a decade on. So with that, I'll let John over here roll us the clip, and then we can get into the conversation. The reason child welfare isn't working is because there are children in foster care. It's not that government's doing it badly. It's that foster care is a bad idea. The error is the intervention. And the crazy part is we still believe We just keep doing it over and over and over and expecting it to work. Child welfare is an industry, and industries are self-protecting ecosystems. Think about it. The only time the federal government pays me is when I take somebody's kid. And as soon as that kid's in foster care, they instantly become a commodity, and the industry starts to wrap around doctors, lawyers, judges, social workers, advocates, whole organizations. The industry is committed to this intervention, this taking other people's children, because that's what it needs to survive. And it's on autopilot now. It's going to do whatever it has to do to stay alive. And this industry, to stay alive, needs other people's children. Let's keep doing it just like we're doing it and mark our calendars for January 2024. I'll meet everybody back here in 10 years, and we'll review all the kids that went through this mill and how they all ended up, and then we'll discuss how hard we tried to make it work. And then... I will give you the shortest TED Talk in history. It'll go a little something like this. Einstein gave us a definition of insanity. Perhaps we should review. Thank you. Where are we today, Molly? Well, I think progress has been made, for sure. And of course, For those of us who crave it, it's never fast enough. You know, I feel like that moment of that TED Talk was, it felt important to be providing a critique of the field to which I have dedicated my career while I was still in the chair, right? Because child welfare is awash with people who stand outside of these systems and judge it harshly. That's true. But also I felt like the important contribution that this TED Talk made was it named something 
that was hovering in lots of people's minds. Like a lot of, I got a lot of responses that were, yes, that. A lot of mm, felt like momentum just in having put the concept on the table. I think that's really important. And, you know, since then, a lot of important things have happened, like the family's first legislation is really important, right? The notion that we should be keeping kids and families and the push to keep them with their kin when they come into foster care, deeper understandings about how these systems are doing unintended harm. So much of the work you know, you and I discussed up to now about how the decisions that we make in child welfare often fall along a color line that does damage to black and brown families. So I think all of those things are really important. And I worry about our ability to get past a platitude, you know, because we can get to those pretty easily in child welfare, just as long as it's good for kids. I mean, the rhetorical, where the rhetoric is and where actuality is, is, of course, a good question. You mentioned Family First, which changed to, to a very minor degree. It only federal policymaker wisdom degree what the trigger for federal funds to support yep. children in the system was. And now it's just at the border of having a judge say, this kid can't be with mom or dad. But that opens the door to a new way of thinking. So that is a fundamental change since you gave this talk. But I think, which we've been talking about a lot lately, just tell me about naming what the child welfare system does as oppression, yep. as you do in that talk. And the degree to which that label, which of course came from you on the inside, which is easy to hurl at the system, as you alluded to before, when you're on the outside, but how much has that thinking started to be, become pervasive throughout the field, this concept of oppression? I believe it is still a tool of oppression, but there's a caveat to that. As I was tried to be so careful in my comments in 2014... And as you and I have said, I don't think people in child welfare get up every morning trying to figure out how to go hurt some kids and destroy families. I really don't. And yet, there is a way in which we're not in awareness and acknowledgement that it is a tool of oppression, that it's operating in a context in our country that puts us unwittingly with its tools in our hands. And so, we're, if that weren't the case, this wouldn't be falling along the color line. If it weren't the case, then it wouldn't be only happening to poor families. I believe we have a responsibility to protect children from harm, that it is a public good to make sure that they're safe. And in rare circumstances where people are willfully doing damage to them, we should swoop in and protect them. It's just as, you know, as you and I know, that is not often what child welfare is doing. We're often intervening with blunt objects when we could do something quite more delicate. It feels like I want to be able to continue to say, yes, it is a tool of oppression, but not do it in a way that I'm offending or blaming anyone, that I'm in it. And let's all recognize it and imagine what could we do that would mean we were protecting children when they needed to be protected, but that we weren't misusing this tool. Well, you make the argument very clearly what you, you put up the definition of what oppression is, mm -hmm. right? And it's a systematic utilization of coercive power, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, yeah. to focus attention on a certain subset of people, right? And, you know, in, in a way that hurts them. And so that tag seems pretty appropriate when you take a step back and think about what this has done to families writ large. Also, when you're talking, you mentioned kind of, you do that child welfare leader thing, 
where you kind of rattle off your success in reducing numbers, reducing numbers of kids in the system. And I have always walked the line on whether or not it's appropriate, and I'm not suggesting that you did this, but appropriate to set numeric goals for reductions in number of kids entering the system. I think that maybe is a, I may be open to a different perception now, but I'm wondering if this is an overused tool. And again, back to your through line, how do you get to a place where the intervention is being used judiciously and narrowly and for very short amounts of time? How do we actually get there? We've been talking about going upstream and all those kinds of things. Are there new opportunities right now to get there seven years after this talk was given? Oh, I think so. I think to your earlier point, you have to disaggregate the group. Like if you were just going to say, well, I'm just going to pick a random number and I'm going to reduce the number of kids in foster care by X percent. It's not the work to get that done is about disaggregating the group and understanding which kids are coming to my attention because somebody who's responsible for them is beating them with a bat. Which kids are coming to my attention because they don't have the food or medicine that they need. And if I can look at those kids and say, well, which of those are because a parent is willfully refusing to take care of their kid in deference to, I don't know, the thing to which they are addicted or the other thing that they prefer, as opposed to which kids don't have enough of that because that mom or dad, they're working three jobs and they're busting a gut, but it's just that they're in an impossible situation that is not about I'm willfully trying to harm my child. I'm desperately trying and not making ends meet on my own. That kind of disaggregating helps me understand what kind of intervention for which kind of family. They're not all, it's not apples and apples and apples that come to the front door of child welfare. We have to see that in a more complex way. And that, I mean, that's why Families First is so important because prior to Families First, the only tool you had in your kit bag was take the kid into foster care. Even if you're in a jurisdiction that was inclined to say, well, let's try to avoid that. Frankly, all you need is one high profile death. And then everybody gets to, oh, you're on the side of caution, bring the kids into foster care. And we, we drift so quickly into these draconian approaches to child welfare. It's hard to keep our grip on keep kids safe at home because it, it feels scary. It feels risky to us. I was going to say something else about this, the numbers that I say. The one that has been on my mind lately is the use of congregate care. We reduced the number of kids in congregate care by 89%. It was really important to me. And it's not unrelated to what you're saying because what I wanted to do was have kids in their own families. I had to start by getting them in a family, right? Because this notion that it was better to have them in congregate care, that it was safer, easier, or that the kids weren't ready for families. I heard that a lot. They have to behave and then they can have a family. And you know me, I kept thinking, well, hookers and thugs get families. How come my kids can't have families? But more recently, there's been a fascinating discussion about this. On the one hand, I hear Children's Rights, who, as you may know, has this huge campaign to end the use of congregate care in the country. And they have brought together the most fabulous group of people to help come up with a plan for doing this. And on the other hand, I hear the mayor of San Diego proudly announcing that they've opened up the convention center to house 1,500 kids coming across the border. Oh, yeah. Those people are talking about like it's a success. And I'm sort of dumbfounded and wonder if have their kids spend a night. I mean, God, it works so well in Houston after Katrina. Like it makes so much sense that we would do this again, right? But also, even when I think about children's rights work, children's rights talks about it. And I'm part of the team, a huge fan. Talks about it like it's really hard. And I hear myself saying, well, I don't know, like I 
reduce the number of kids in congregate care by, I stopped using them. I got, I stopped sending kids there. And I think, well, that's kind of obnoxious of me to say, because it wasn't that simple. I just like, I'm prone to hyperbole. So I make things sort of simple or get to platitudes. And I feel like the difference with what you're saying before is the rhetoric and the actuality. We have the rhetoric. And I think we have work to do in child welfare to let's get honest about the actuality of what mm-hmm. is it going to take to do something like not have kids live in institutions. Well, we're going to have to commit to it as a mission. We're going to have to brand it. Kids got to be in families. I mean, Molly, the, 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 the connection to the Long Beach Convention Center is a pretty potent one in the sense that that clearly looks like oppression. And the intervention there, as you said, foster care was the intervention and that's a bad, the intervention is the problem. I mean, in this case, the intervention is, is institutionalization. Yeah. And, you know, so it's the counterpoint shows maybe some progress within child welfare. I mean, your example in Baltimore, but same could be said of not to the kind of rapid rate of decline that you guys had there, but in California, I mean, you know, everywhere there's been this push out of congregate care, which yes. I think shows at least a recognition of the kind of dire consequence of the child welfare system. And now, so there is, there is quite a bit of evolution. Yes, but, but if as that's you noted, true, in, why are we celebrating yeah. what's happening in San Diego Life's success? How did we get to that logic? Oh, what we should do is open up, a, open up an enormous congregate setting. That's not even a place people live, but we're going to make it a place that children, and have you seen the videos? They're children that are going in. Yeah. It's not, no. I'm not, I'm not I mean, trying to be I, mad at San Diego, but I just think the logic that how do we slip so quickly? I think it's because we don't have the, we're not being honest enough about how we do it. What does it actually take to do it so that more people can see? Here's the one, two, three, four, six things you do that mean you can move the needle on something, that you could disaggregate your caseload and only have the right kids in foster care and keep the wrong kids out, keep them in families. You could do the same thing to shorten the length of stay for any kid that comes in foster care. You could do the same thing for I'm going to stop using congregate settings and keep kids in families. We gloss over with the rhetoric what is deserving of let's get really specific about tactically. How are you going to put one foot in front of the other? And I think that's what's missing. We, we keep bringing in new leaders and they get, new, they get new big, bold ideas and they, we have new campaigns. And I think, yeah, it's the unflashy tactical stuff that we need so badly. Well, I think what you're speaking to is, and, you know, this is, again, it's in relief to something terrible. But, you know, the child welfare system, at least as I've watched it over the last decade, and maybe, I mean, I've watched it too closely. So if I take a step back, maybe it'll be better to, to kind of get a little bit of distance to understand it better again. But it seems to me that there's been quite a bit of focus on tactical solutions, whereas I would argue in the, you know, unaccompanied alien children program at HHS, I don't think there's been, you know, the kind of consistent chorus of leaders. It's a more disaggregated system and one that people don't look at so closely. So they just go back feels like they go back to the tools that you would use in earlier I- instances of child welfare. You're, you're, you're uh, clinching your teeth like I'm saying something idiotic, I, I, which no, may I, be true. No, I'm coming to an idea as you're talking. I think you're right. The, and the parallel I'm drawing is that given a problem, look how fast we solved it a particular way. We drifted from everything. I mean, there, there are child welfare leaders all over the country who actually know how to get kids out of congregate care. We know how to do it, right? Like, right? And, but look, given this moment, how quickly we as a country drifted into this solution 
for brown-skinned children, again, it's not something any of us would do for our own kids. I don't, it's just how quickly the logic overtook us. And that as I watched the news come out and the, you know, the little video they did on the news about how proud they are of doing this as a solution, it, that's stunning to me that there is not outrage. This is not how we do things. This is not how we care for children in this country. But somehow it's the drift into it. And it worries me for child welfare too. It worries me for even the places that have said we're going to reduce congregate care. It's fragile. And there's some work to do to get those transactions known, to get the people who are doing it rewarded. Rewarded. I don't mean like pay them. I mean like name it. That's the thing. Look, look what was achieved. We have to get in some kind of sweet spot, not overcomplicated, so that you have to get a white paper with 92 recommendations or something you're supposed to do to reduce congregate care and get it down to common sense, right? You need to name it. You need to brand. That's what you're going to do. You need to use data to drive decision-making so that you can, in the context of congregate care, you can figure out how to have two parallel reform plans. You need to stop putting kids into congregate care. And you need to get the kids who are in congregate care out. Those are two separate plans that have to be operating at the same time, right? And then you have to get transactional. You have to put one foot in front of the other. We have to like start taking them off so that you know what's working. So you can do what's working more of the time. I just feel like that we either only say the platitude or we make it feel like it's really, really complicated. And there is something about willfully stepping into a common sense of get her done that we drift from clearly as we've we've kind of focused i mean i think drift comes in also focus and we focus our attention on the prevention side way less interesting to talk about what's happening on the back end i mean look at our investigation that we did alongside the san francisco chronicle about how you know the state of california says we won't work with for-profit institutions to house our kids but then they they did so with a with shell company some of a bigger for-profit firm that were nonprofits that took their kids. When we confronted them with that information, they have to send the kids back home, you know? So it, it also requires vigilance. But overall, it's very heartening in the sense that the anti-congregate care rhetoric was loud, 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 right? And then it resulted in something. I think what you're speaking to is how do you, how do you keep the trains moving and people focused? Because it's hard. I mean, you got to focus now. We also got to focus on prevention simultaneously and that's like way sexier to talk about than right. group homes right but we're, we're we're not there yet it's, you know it's it's when i talk to people who are working with older foster youth i mean circa 2008 that's what everybody was talking about you know and then it's so then we're not necessarily focusing adequate attention on the back end for the front end so i think you need people that are able to think about the system as a whole and continually and that's that's kind of hard to find you know, the lucky thing is in child welfare, there are a lot of people, a lot of interested parties. I mean, interestingly, though, I remember when there was the family separation program under Trump. And, you know, there was some chirping from the child welfare field, but it wasn't as vociferous as it could have been. That's right. I agree. And, and what you're talking about now is it seems like you have a group of people that have done the thinking on this. Yeah. Why is there not a backlash from the child welfare community against what's happening to children crossing the border? It seems to me also, if we think about broader solutions incumbent on the child welfare system, and I always thought this, I always thought there's a lot of answers, even though it's an oppressive system that I've come to recognize fully, 
with the, those caveats, there are a lot of answers. And to not be vociferous, I guess I'd just say, if I have any influence at all, to those who are listening, like, maybe you should really think about what Molly's saying regarding the convention center and what that means about gains that the child welfare system has won and could just as easily lose. I guess that's part of what I worry about is that it's not just because the gains are so hard fought. And you're right. When we gain something, a, a progress in child welfare, it's not just that it's hard fought, but don't think once it's done, you can look away for a second. It requires so much vigilance to maintain these hard fought successes and they feel fragile to me. And the placing of 1500 Brown children in a convention center for me is evidence of fragility in what's happening in child welfare. I just think if, if we have really moved the country to a different way of thinking, then it never would have occurred to us. We would be coming up with different solutions than a convention center. I think this, it speaks to something else that I recognize throughout my time as deeply stepped into in this field as I, as I have is that Remember, I mean, Rose, you know, Teddy Roosevelt had that whole concept around the conference of the child. And there was really at the White House way back when and the whole idea of having a cabinet level child position. And we still aren't there. There's no there's still, you know, rhetoric, political rhetoric is long on children and short on activity and short on dollars for sure. And so I don't know. Yes, you can you could do podcasts, you can blog, you could op-ed, you could try to get stories in the press. I've spent a whole decade doing that. And, you know, it's like, how much public is there that you can touch? And so I think at the highest levers of power, have people realize the fundamental knowledge that was gained through this terrible experience that child welfare has been. How do you ensure that that knowledge is in an advisory role? I don't know how to set a place for us at the tables where this work is happening because, I mean, child welfare generally, as we said earlier, like I got all these people who stand outside and judge, generally mm -hmm. the opinion of child welfare is the reason it's not going well is because the people inside child welfare are either stupid or they don't care. And neither of those things are true, but that's sort of the cloak we've been given somehow. And so we just sort of, you know, say, okay, and get back to work because there's so much to do. But it's, the consequences for the country, I think, of not acknowledging that there are things that are known by people inside child welfare agencies about families who are struggling, about what children who are vulnerable need, about ways to put progress on a map and chart a course and accomplish things. And that's not, we're not seen as a source for how one might do those things. I mean, Jesus, if that were the case, then they would stop bringing the former chief of police over to run child welfare agencies or the former state's attorney over to run it. We're generally seen as, well, it's not a, it's not a knowledge. I think the problem we've talked about before is this question of disaggregating the functions of child welfare from its mm. oppressive function and its safety net redemptive function. It has both. I mean, it is the most, it is the most conflicted field, I would mm. argue. You know, it, its charge is so ambivalent that I think that that's, that's kind of a, something we got to get over. But I think we should commit to try to find a way to get it at those tables with more consistency. This is so great. You so, are fabulous, Daniel. And that was a really where said the oppressive function and the redemptive function and the charges and ambivalent. That's really, really brilliant. It's great. I think, well, that's nice to hear from you. But I mean, I think we can agree 
that it's that that in every every child welfare professional they carry both the hammer and the olive branch or whatever the hammer and I don't know the baby wipe (laughs) but I mean it's 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 nurturing and and destroying it's it's pretty tough so you know it's gonna be two years until your January or whatever 2014 when you invited everybody at the Baltimore stage to come back and and say have we done anything different Will we meet Einstein's definition of insanity or have we found some, some hope? I think the answer will probably be both. And I think progress was made and we drift and we slip into old ways of being and we need to stand guard against that. And I look forward to spending a lot of time unearthing more specifically the how we do it, not just that we should. But how are we going to pull that off? As uh, I feel like the work I'm turning my attention to. Well, Molly, as I you know sail away from the more formal aspect of my fostering media connections connection um, into a formal but not as deeply engaged portion, you know I'm looking forward to having continued conversations with you both in these forums and offline. Yeah. And I think it's important to remember that rhetoric is as you've mentioned, one thing, but figuring out how to put one foot in the other is another. And everybody should listen to that message. So with that, I will leave you, Molly. Hey, congrats on the new gig, buddy. Thank you. Thanks to Molly Tierney and Daniel Heibel for joining us for this conversation. The Imprint Weekly Podcast is a production of Fostering Media Connections, a California-based nonprofit. This podcast is produced and mixed by Christine Anjoko, who also made the music for this episode. If you enjoyed it, we'd greatly appreciate if you'd consider subscribing or giving us a five-star rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts. You can follow The Imprint on Twitter and Facebook by searching the handle at The Imprint News and visit us on the web at imprintnews.org. And you can always reach us over email at tips at imprintnews.org.